0: Dive into this, one of the things that you see is that Jesus is a master teacher. And as a master teacher, he he teaches not only by his words, but by actions, by circumstances, by situations. And that's what we're going to see this morning is that that he's he's using something. Not only is sitting down and teaching by his words, he's teaching by what he's doing. And the focus here isn't just about learning what lessons he was trying to teach his disciples at that time through this experience but as we see the experience, it's also teaching us something about the way that God continues to teach, the ways that he teaches us even now. Now, we're gonna see this passage, and again, we see it's, you know, it's the feeding of the 5,000, and I wanna take a moment before we get into it to look at this and to see that, that a huge part of it is this idea that he's, that he's multiplying the bread. And in fact, what we see is we're going to, see, uh, in chapter 22, Jesus comes back to this and he begins to explain the meaning of this whole miracle. And, uh, and he says then in verse, uh, uh, he says later on in verse 36, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so there's this idea of bread that he's teaching. And, and one of the things that, just to mention, we're going to see a lot more of this in a couple weeks, is we've got to realize the importance of bread. And what it says about the principles of God's provision. You see, when we hear him talk about the bread of life or we see this multiplying of bread, to us, we kind of miss it a little bit because when we think of bread, it's not as important to us as it would have been to the people in, in this culture. People in ancient cultures, most of them, when they thought of bread, they thought of the primary staple of their diet. That's what they ate. That was the, the heart of the meal, if not the whole meal. You see, today when we think of bread, you know, we, have, we have a meal and we might put some bread out as a side dish. It's kind of an important side dish, but it's not the main course of the meal. In fact, even when you have a sandwich, I mean, of course, the sandwich, the bread's important. But when you think of the sandwich, it's what you put in between the bread, which is the main part of the meal. So it's not that significant. But then again, people then didn't have a whole lot of meat to eat. They didn't have a whole lot of other things. So bread was the primary staple. And so when he talks about bread, he's talking about not just, you know, food or, or something that we could eat, he's talking about our primary provision. And so even you think about in the Lord's Prayer, what does he teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. And so the daily bread wasn't just, okay, that we have something to eat, you know, it's, it's not just that we have bread with our meal, but give us this day our daily provision, the things that we need in life, you know, all the things that we need. The things that we need to be healthy, the things that we need to be able to function in life. And so it's because of this, it's, it's an important metaphor that the people responded the way they did. And we're going to see again more of this next week. That we see in the response that after this, this miracle, you know, they're saying, this must be the prophet. And they come and they, they literally want to force him to be king. Because they see him as the one that's going to meet all their needs. And so again, we're going to see a lot of that next week. And I wanted to mention it. But what I want, or in two weeks, what I really want to see primarily this week is that Jesus is not only teaching what we're going to see in a couple of weeks of this idea that he's the bread of life, but he's teaching something through the miracle itself, through this experience to the, you know, to the disciples, to his followers. There's something, and in fact, he really makes this clear. Um, on Sunday nights, you know, we're teaching this class on how to understand the Bible. And the first two weeks, we've kind of dealt with a lot of basic principles, these basic rules for interpreting the Bible. And one of the rules that we talk about is the idea that the Bible is very precise in the way it's written. It's God's perfect and complete message to mankind. In other words, God has ordained the writing of the Bible so that it's incredibly precise. Every verse, every statement, the way it's said, is said intentionally for a purpose. It has a meaning. Now, that's the basic rule, and one of the subpoints that is really important with that rule is this. The parts of the passage that seem obscure or out of place are often intended to draw attention as a key to understanding the whole passage. Now, often what happens, we come to a passage and, and there's something that kind of is obscure, it doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to belong, it's, it's, it seems out of place, it seems superfluous, and it's, it's our natural tendency to kind of skip over it because it's not really moving the story along. And, and, and that's the way we tend to read things, but what we, tend to, what we need to do is that although these might be you know, uncomfortable, or it seems like it's not that, that vital, what we've got to realize is that, that these are often the, the main point. It's almost in a sense that they're put it there so it seems out of place, and it's a way of highlighting it. It's a way of putting it in bold. It's something that seems out of place to say, OK, notice this because it helps explain the bigger picture of the whole story. And so when we get into the study of John, I'll tell you the more I've studied it, the more I find that John uses this method all the time, and we see it here in this passage, actually in verses three and four. In both of these verses, he seems to say something that doesn't seem to go with the whole the whole message. Look at verse three. You know, in verse two, we're told that you know that, uh, you know that Jesus went to another place. He, he um, you know all these people are following him. And then in verse three, it says he went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, now it seems unnecessary because if you take it out, the story actually flows better. That that he went somewhere, people are following them, and then we come to verse 5, and it says that he looks up and he sees this big crowd coming to him. And why does it say that in the middle of this, that he went up in this mountain and he sat down to teach his disciples? I mean, is it almost saying that, you know, well, the people are following him, he went to sit down, he started to teach, and then he had to get up as soon as he started again because he got interrupted? No, I don't think so. There's something here, it, it seems to be an unnecessary detail, but it's trying to teach us something about the meaning of the story. It, it's, it's not just—it's trying to teach us something about the meaning of what happened. When he's sitting down, it's an act of teaching. And, and, and why does it say that he sat down, and as soon as he sat down, he had to get up? I think the whole point is what it's stressing here, is that Jesus sat down to teach, and he began to teach his disciples, and what happened is how he taught. The teaching wasn't in the lecture. It's teaching wasn't interrupted. The whole idea here is that it's trying to make clear that it's not that this was an interruption and Jesus made the best out of it. This is the point of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples the lesson that he wanted to teach them through the experiences they're about to go through. Now, the second seemingly unnecessary fact is in verse 4. Because when we read verse 4, and it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And again, this seems totally unnecessary to the story. There's nothing in the story that seems to, to tie it to that timing of the Passover. And so why does he put it there? Now, again, we're going to come back to this at the end. Because there's a really important point. It's not just the superfluous fact It's there for a reason, it's a hint, it's a highlight to help us notice something that comes up later in the story. But let's go back to the first part, verse three. The whole point of this passage is that he's trying to teach. So he's trying to teach, and and how does he teach? He teaches by testing our faith. Again, this is not only how he taught ten; it's how he teaches now. Again, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses five and six. It says he sits down to teach, and then all these people come, And what it's saying is when he sat down to teach, this is how he's teaching. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Now, why does he ask, where are we going to buy bread? Yes, it was to test, but what was the test? What was the purpose I mean, was it to see, you know, how smart they were, what ideas they came up with? Was it just kind of like, well, I'm just curious to see what ideas you have before I tell you my idea? You no, know, one of the things that's really important to remember when we study the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus never asks a question to get information. All right, he's God. He's all-knowing. It's not like he's sitting there saying, well, Philip, I'm kind of curious what your answer would be before I give my answer. So, you know, here, what's your answer? He's not trying to learn from Philip what Philip would come up with. He's not asking because he needs information. He's asking because he's trying to teach Philip what he needs, what the disciples need. This is a question to teach so that they can learn something about themselves. So it's not saying, okay, Philip, will you give a good answer? It's... It's, it's, it's a test, and it's a test not to, to see. okay, you know, what's your answer? Are you gonna pass or fail the test, depending on the quality of your answer. When the Bible talks about test, especially test of our faith, it's, it uses the word in a way that's different than the way that we usually use it. So when it talks about testing, what it's talking about is often purifying our faith, stretching our faith, you know, challenging our faith to where it's at and challenging it to grow. In fact, let me give a good example of where it's used in this way in 1 Peter. Look at what Peter says. In this you rejoice, now that for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. You see, how is it tested? It's tested by trials, stretched and grown and purified, so that it becomes more precious than gold that purishes by fire, though it is tested by fire. See, how is the gold tested? It's put into the fire, not to see if it's gold or not, but it's melted so that the impurities rise up. And that's how God tests our faith. So that's the whole idea here. He's testing not in the sense of saying, I wonder what you're gonna say. He's testing saying, okay, Philip and the other disciples, I'm saying this because I wanna stretch your faith. And when he asked them where are we to buy, buy bread, what he's doing is that he's giving them a challenge. Okay, here's a problem, can you solve it? And the challenge is way beyond their capacity. It's way beyond their resources. And that's what God still does us to, for us today. How does he test us? He gives us challenges in life that are way greater than our resources. You know, he says to them, how are you going to feed these people? And They look and they're overwhelmed. And they're, they're 5,000 men, likely 10 to 15,000 people. And, and they're like, Jesus, we don't have the money. I mean, if we pull all our money, we couldn't give people, you know, a little piece of that communion bread that they serve in, you know, 20, you know 20th century churches. I mean, we couldn't give them anything. And, you know, it's way greater than our resources. And again, it's not just what Jesus did then. It's teaching us of the way that God still grows our faith and teaches us today. How does he do it? He puts us in situations that are far greater than our resources. He said, okay, here's a problem. Here's something to deal with. Here's something to to live through. And, And it's way more than we can handle. Now, I know there might be some who are thinking, now, wait a second. Uh, Doesn't the Bible say that God will never give us more than we can handle? And, you know, that's an extremely popular Christian aphorism, you know, that, you know, when we're going through a hard time, you know, we go to somebody that's really struggling and we say, well, just know that God's not going to give you more than you handle. The Bible promises that. Okay, let me ask you, where does the Bible promise that? And We quote it all the time. (laughs) Do we know what verse it comes from? Well, let's see, First Hesitations chapter 2, which, you know, just, um, it's actually probably, I think, where people take it from is in 1 Corinthians 10.13. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, let's look at what it says. No temptation has overtaken you except that it is common to man, and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, I will acknowledge the word temptation there is the same word for trial, so the application would seem to be the same. But here's what I want you to realize. Look at the rest of the verse. But with the temptation or trial, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here's what it's promising. It's not saying that he will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond your ability. He's saying you will be tempted and tried beyond your ability. He will allow you to be tested beyond your ability on your own. But at the same time, he's going to provide resources outside of you. He's going to provide this way of escape so that when you are overwhelmed, when you rely on his provision, then it won't be more than you can handle with his help. But it will be way more than you can handle apart from him. That's what he's doing here with his disciples in John 6. He's giving them far more than they can handle. And one of the things that we have to realize is, well, that's our, you know, sometimes we'll come back and say, well... Well, that's our natural resources. Well, how about our faith? And if we have enough faith, you know, he will never give us what we can handle beyond our resources and our faith. Well, let's look a little deeper you know, how God grows our faith. Because again, what is it? It's a testing or growing of our faith. So if the purpose is to grow our faith, it's not just to see if we have it. The purpose is actually to stretch it and grow it and expand it beyond its current level. Let me take you to James chapter one because I think James communicates this so effectively. Like what James one says, verse one two: "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." Now, first of all, when you when you look at it, it doesn't say count it joy if it says when. And one of the realities of life is we're all going to face trials. You know, we're either you know we're either coming out of them in it or or you know preparing to go to the next one. And that's the reality. That's part of life. We live in a fallen world. Trials are part of it. So it's not counted if, it's counted when we have trials. Also notice that he doesn't call us to be joyful. He doesn't call us to be happy. He uses an intellectual word, count it joy, consider it. It's not saying, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to be happy no matter what. It's saying, as a follower of Christ, we realize that even in the miserable times of trials, we can know that there's reason for joy. It's not that you're going to feel it. It's that we can know that it's true. Why? Because we know that the, you know, the, the testing of our faith produces, produces perseverance. The testing, you see, not seeing if we have it, the stretching produces perseverance and let steadfastness have its full, uh, full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. So the purpose is to grow us. So there's a reason, and that's what he's saying. That's why we can consider it joy. Have intellectually know there's reason for joy. We know that God is in charge, and we know that God isn't going to allow anything to happen to us except that which He has planned for our good to grow us to a more mature faith. Now let's go back to John chapter six. What's happening is He's giving there a challenge that is far greater than the resources. That's the whole idea here in John six, right here, and 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 we're overwhelmed. But we're not overwhelmed in our own resources. We're overwhelmed in our faith. See, looks back here. What is the purpose of the trial? That at the end, when it has its full effect, then you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. But the very next words, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, at the end you're going to lack, not lack anything, but in the middle you're going to lack. And literally it, does, it reads in if, you know, that... Um, Literally, it reads in the Greek, if any of you lack wisdom, which you will. And Again, it's not saying that this might happen to some of you. It's saying that all of us will. All of us will lack wisdom. At the end, we're not gonna lack anything. In the middle of the trial, we're gonna lack wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom, simply defined, is wisdom is the ability to apply God's truth, the truths that I know about God, to my life at any specific point in time. And so what is lacking wisdom in the midst of trials? Lacking wisdom is, I know that God is in charge. I know that God has a good purpose. I know that I should consider this joy. I know that there's something that's going go, to work out. I know those things, but right here in the middle of the trial, I don't see it. I know it, but I don't feel it. I know I should think these, but I don't. I'm doubting, I'm struggling. God, I'm, I'm, are you here? God, it doesn't feel like anything, so these things are true. See, here's what we've got to realize. Let me use an illustration. Here's what God is doing. The purpose is to grow our faith. Let's say if we say he wants to give us you know, a two-quart faith, and all we've got is a one-quart faith. This is our faith. How does he get us from here to here? The way he does it, he said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some trials. And you know, we go through this trial, and man, we can handle it pretty well. And it's getting hard, but we've got it. What happens is he continues to pour it in. And what happens is when you pour a two-quart problem into a one-quart faith, it overflows. And is God angry when it overflows? Does God look at us and say, man, I thought you were a person of faith. I thought you would have joy. I thought you'd believe. No, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach. He understands. He's not sitting there saying, how dare you doubt? How dare you struggle? He's sitting there saying, you're supposed to struggle. I'm pouring a two-quart problem into a one-quart faith, and I'm not surprised that it's overflowing. That's supposed to happen. Because I want to grow a two-quart faith, and this is the only way to do it, is to test, to stretch, to grow your faith. And it's not that our faith has failed. It's It's that God's showing us that we need something deeper. We need to rely upon him in a new way. Now, that's the meaning here. Now in the midst of that we also have to realize what does the next verse in James say? You know, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without finding without reproach. It will be given him. God doesn't reproach us for struggling, for for doubting. But then doesn't it say, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for he the one who doubts is like the way the sea. I thought we're not supposed to doubt, we're not supposed to struggle. Isn't that what it says? No, here's what it's saying is that we will lack wisdom, and that means that we will struggle, and we will doubt, and we will argue with God, and we will not see it, and God doesn't find fault in our struggle. But in the middle of that struggle, it's saying, where are you going to choose to put your faith? You have what you feel to be true, and you have what you know to be true, and you're gonna struggle between the two, and God doesn't find fault in that struggle. Ask of God, admit it to God, admit that need, admit how much you're hurting, argue with him. And he's not going to get mad at you. But never stop putting your faith in what you know. Realize that what you know about God is the ultimate truth. It's not what you feel. Because if you put your faith in what you feel, then your faith is going to come in and out like the tide of the sea, whether it's good or bad. But God gives us the ability to struggle. But in the midst of the struggle, what we see in the Psalms all the time is, God, where are you? But yet will I believe. Yet I will put my anchor here. I'm going to hold on to these truths even though I don't feel them to be true. God, help me to believe. Give me the wisdom that I don't have. Give me the ability to apply these truths that I don't have right now. And my friends, if we hold on to that, he will. And what we've got to realize is that's how he's teaching us. And all of us are going to go through these seasons. That's that's not God, like, you know, something bad happens, and God says, well, how do I make the best of it? No, Jesus is sitting down, and he says, okay, well, let me teach you, and and here's the way to do it. It's an expression. It doesn't feel loving oftentimes in the middle of it, but it's his love. It's compassion as he's teaching us, and he invites us to struggle in the middle of it. Now, let's go back to John 6, and we see, let me bring out four ideas here that, the truths that guide us in these times of testing. Four, four ideas here. For, number one, kind of what we've dealt with so far, is we cannot know God's power and provision until we acknowledge our inadequacy. And this whole idea that we, until we come to the point where we realize, I don't have what it takes. Even I don't have the faith that it takes. God, give me faith, give me wisdom I don't have. God, how am I supposed to, you know, where do we get food for, you know, 10,000 people? We don't have what it takes. And until we say, I don't have what it takes, see, one of our problems is that we try to do it in our own strength. That's our natural tendency. You know, know, I've always said, you know, life is, Christian life is a whole lot easier if I don't need faith. You know, if I can do it on my own, I'm never, life's easy that way. And so God, in his love, he puts us in places that drive us beyond our ability, so that we will acknowledge our inadequacy. And only when we do will we understand his strength, because until we do recognize what we don't have, you see, we're going to try to do it on our strength. Paul realized this, and he talked about in periods of, of his struggle, look what he said in Second Corinthians Um, I'm sorry, I don't have it up here. 2 Corinthians 2.9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. No, it's God's power is made perfect in our weakness. When we are weak, then we find his strength. Second point, our demonstration of faith must be active, not passive. Now, this is beautiful in this story. See, on the one hand, one of our dangers is self-sufficiency. You know, we sit there and we try to do it on our own, and I got it, I got it, and and the other take, you know, is that we come back and we say, I, I don't have it, God. Okay, I'm going to sit back and wait for you to do the miracle. This is broken, and I don't have a clue what to do, and God, here you take it. Think about this whole story. Why did Jesus do the miracle the way he did? Have you ever thought about that? He could have just spoken bread into existence. He could have turned, take the rocks, and he could have turned them into bread. Why did he test his disciples. He could have gone out there and said, hey, does anybody have any lunch? He could have found the the boy on his own. But why did he send his disciples out? You think about it, Philip, in a sense, failed the test. And he failed the test at first because because he didn't learn. What happened? Jesus comes to him and he says, okay, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip said, you know, I can't afford it. You know, Even if we put all our money together, we couldn't buy a little bread. Jesus, I don't have what it takes. And basically his response to Jesus is, Jesus, I'm overwhelmed. I've got nothing. If it's going to happen, it's you. Now, Andrew, on the other hand, looks at this and he says, I'm overwhelmed. But he realizes that Jesus asked him into this process. And so he goes out and looks. And he says, okay, all I found is this little boy. And have you ever thought about this? Andrew had to feel a little stupid coming up to Jesus and saying, okay, Jesus, I know you asked us how we're going to feed these people, and I've got this little boy, and he's got five dinner rolls and two sardines. 10,000 people, is that going to help? You know, I mean, Andrew had to feel stupid coming to Jesus. I mean, he's bringing a little boy's lunch for 10,000 people. And, And you almost expect that Jesus would look at him and say, Andrew, are you, you know, seriously? you know, you see how many people are here, but Jesus didn't do that, he looks at him, and his response, it's, you know, affirming Andrew, and saying, okay, Andrew, you've got it, okay, I asked you to do something, and you went out, and you looked at what you had, and you brought, and you acknowledged that it's totally inadequate, but you're saying, okay, what is my part, And what we've got to realize is that's the way that God works. On the one hand, sometimes we could sit there and say, I got it, I got it, and we don't rely on him. And then sometimes we realize it's totally out of us and we're like, okay, God, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to wait for you to, you know, you got to do it. you got to do a miracle. And we don't do our part. We just, we're passive. No, God's called us to be active in our faith, to do our part, but at the same time to acknowledge it's not enough. To go out and to find the little bit of lunch. To find, you know, the five little, you know, and yeah, five rolls and two sardines are not near enough, but you know, God, that's what you called me to. You know, I see this all the time. There are times that, you know, somebody's like, man, my marriage is falling apart, and, and I'm going to sit back and wait for God to strike him with lightning and change him and fix things. No, you got to go to counseling. You pray that God do it, and you say, God, this isn't enough, but what's the part that you have called me to do? God, I want to raise kids and I want them to follow after Christ and, and so I'm going to sit there and just pray you do it. Well, no, you, you do it but at the same time you try to read the Bible. You bring them to church. You know, you, you, you know I'm amazed that people will, the kids will go off to high school or college and they walk away from Christ and, and the parents are like, God, why have you let me down? And meanwhile, these parents are you know, parents that they spend all their time doing all the sports ministries and never brought their kids on Wednesday night, never brought them to youth group and no, you've got to do your part. And that's not enough, it's not enough, but you know what, that's the little bit that God uses. If all you have is a couple rolls and a couple sardines, God can multiply it, but bring the couple rolls and a couple sardines. You know, when you look at this and you say, how do I find meaningful relationships? God, you know, drop somebody in my life. Well, go try a small group. You know, go get involved. God, I have gotta fix my, my finances, you know. God, I'll play the lottery, give me the lottery and do a miracle. Well, no, go to Financial Peace University. Do your part. Get involved and let God do the, and he will do the miracle, but you got to do your part, even evangelism. God, I don't know how to share my faith with that person. I don't know what to say. And, and you know, God, you, you, know, you, you, know, you do, do what you did to Paul. You just meet them on the road to wherever they're going, you know, the road to, to, you know, to, to, you know, to Caga Falls. You know, you just meet them there. No, no, I'm called to do what it, my part. And I might say, God, it's totally inadequate. I don't know how to answer. So all I'm doing is I'm bringing a couple sardines to the, you know, this thing. God says, okay, I can take that. I can multiply it. Are you willing to let me? Are you willing to have faith that's not just trusting in me, but that's saying, okay, I'm going to step out in faith and bring my little bit and trust that if I do my little bit, you're going to multiply it. Not only that, but then, this is incredible, the confidence of that. How do we have that confidence? The confidence in God's future provision is rooted in his demonstration of, of past demonstration of love. So last week, we, it was interesting, last week we talked about this idea of coming to faith, that faith isn't a leap into the dark, it's a step toward the light. Faith should always be rooted in what we know to be true. It goes beyond what we can see, beyond our experience, beyond our reason, but it's consistent with reason. Now that's not only how we come to faith, it's also how we grow in faith. It's how we have faith as believers. So then how can I believe that God, how are you gonna get me through this? But look at how God has worked. What do we know in the past about God's demonstration of love? See that's the second, when I said there was a second part that didn't seem to belong in verse four. Now this is the Passover, the feast of the Jews. Why is it that there? because it's reminding us, it's giving us a hint. Now when you look at this, think of Passover. Specifically think of the last Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And then when we think of that, we come to verse 11 and it says, Jesus took the loaves and when he gave thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Now you notice that he separated out the loaves and the fish. He took the loaves, he gave thanks and distributed. Now when else did he do that? The Lord's Supper, the last Passover. And the wording here is incredibly precise. It's saying in the middle of this, yes, he will call you to do things beyond your ability. He will stretch you, but he wants you in the midst of that to remember the love that he's already demonstrated. To remember the fact, how much has he loved you? How much has he taken care of you? When you look at it and you say, God, are you gonna get me through this? God, can you provide? Well, remember that when you were my enemy, I died on the cross for you. Look what Paul says about this in Romans. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If he gave his son and paid that price to bring us into relationship with him, anything else that he gives us is free. It doesn't cost him anything. And if he was willing to give us relationship at the cost of his son, now that we're family, Do you really doubt whether God loves you and that he's gonna take care of you? So how is it, if if part of it is saying, okay, how do I pick up the dirt and throw it out there and see the outline of faith? Well, look at what God has done in the past and spend time remembering what he has done in the past, how he's loved you, how he's cared for you, not only at the cross, how he's been there at every point in time. Look back in your life and how he's he's been there. Do you think he's gonna let you down this time? And so the confidence of our future, our future faith and future provision of God is based on what we know of the past. You see, yes, it's a leap of faith. It's a leap beyond what I can see and know, but it's a leap that's consistent with what I can know of the way that God has loved in the past. And lastly, just in closing, that he's calling us to see a lot, realize that our ultimate need is Jesus, not just his works. We're going to look at a lot at this and a lot more in a couple of weeks. But in verse 15, you know, they saw the people saw this and that perceiving that they, uh, you know, they, they come and they they came to Jesus and they and he says perceiving that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew the mountain. So they're looking at this and they're saying, we want him to be king. Jesus, this was awesome. Could you make food for us all the time? Could you provide all our needs? You know, we-that's the kind of Messiah we want. We want a Messiah that's gonna that's gonna provide for us. And so Jesus withdraws because he says, Yeah, I've come to be a Messiah, but not that kind of Messiah. See, what we've got to realize is that a lot of times, even in Christians, when you think of People talk about the health-wealth gospel, which is the idea of saying, you come to God, and if you pray right, if you do it right, you know, God's going to give you stuff. No. What we need isn't God's stuff. What we need is God. Now, if I have God, if I have a relationship with the Almighty King, the, the creator of all things, if I have the perfect Father who has all resources in that relationship, he will also give me the stuff that he knows what is best for me. You see, but what I don't want is I don't just need his stuff, I need him. And it's, they, they they lost sight of this. And for all of us, when we think about this, when we think about in the midst of God's provision, in the midst of, so often it can be in the middle of the trial, God, do this, God, fix this, God, if you do this, I'll believe you. And, and God's saying, I'm, I'm going to take care of you, but I want you to realize what you ultimately need isn't, isn't my power, it isn't my stuff, what you really need is me. And if you have me, then you're going to have everything you need to get through the hard times, and you're going to have everything you need to prosper in the good times. And so it's a challenge to each one of us as we come in, and we might be in the midst of struggle, and and, and we're looking for God to do this or provide this, or. And I want to challenge you: our ultimate need isn't for what God does or provides, or you, you might come and that's the need you're totally. And I don't want to downplay the need; you're aware of it, you're overwhelmed by it, and God is concerned. But what you don't need is his stuff. What you need is is God. And God might be calling you to come and and, and renew that relationship with him, to find confidence in him, because if you have him, he's going to take care of you. Do you know him? Do you have that relationship with him? Maybe if you wandered away, maybe God's calling you through the midst of this back to renew it, to find your confidence in him. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.